Okay, so back to cutting room floor. This is kind of part two of our mini advent series. Uh, talked last time about um, Matthew and the sort of riffing, mm-hmm. quoting yeah, from Isaiah. Isaiah 7. Yeah. Um, but in that same chapter, yeah. right, there's four more. Totally, yeah, yeah. So within uh, the really what we kind of generally call the Christmas story, yeah. Matthew 1 and kind of bleeds into chapter 2, or a lot of it's in chapter 2 as well. Five times, and five times Matthew makes this reference or uses this language of, for this is what the prophet has written, or this was to fulfill what the prophet spoke, something like okay. that. And then you get more or less a quotation from the Old Testament. Okay. And we looked at kind of the last kind of conversation we had from Matthew 1, verse 22 and 23, which referenced back to Isaiah 7, which was that the virgin will give birth to a son, call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Yep. So we spent a lot of time talking about that. So I don't necessarily want to kind of rehash everything yeah. there, but kind of looking at the kind of big picture, okay. why is Matthew doing this, you know, and what is his, what is his purpose? Yeah. And then kind of a layer deeper than that, when you look at each of these sort of five quotations and we'll look at the, the last four here okay. mainly, when you kind of, you know, open your Bible up, look at it in Matthew chapter one or Matthew chapter two, then flip over to the cross reference, even read the paragraph from the Old Testament. For most of them, and I think for most readers, and I would put myself in this camp, you read that Old Testament paragraph or passage that Matthew has just quoted from, and my instant reaction is, I don't understand how Matthew got anything or how why he was thinking of Jesus in that yeah. moment in particular. Yeah. And so just kind of fleshing this out is kind of more yeah. or less the direction we want to go what here. It helps as we're trying to read these stories during Advent mm-hmm. or throughout the year and we go to them and we maybe see in our study Bible some yeah. link below and we think we're being super diligent. We yes. go back and we're like, huh. Like okay. how they how they get that. Yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah, oh, yeah. There's a little confusion. For sure. So maybe the the question then is like how do we make sense of it? Exactly. That? Yeah. And so just kind of working through these again, the first one, and won't spend much time here. Matthew one, verse 22 and 23 is Isaiah seven. Yeah. The second one, Matthew two verses five and six is a quotation from Micah chapter five. And what's interesting about this one is that, uh, even like the most like conservative scholars who want to say something to the effect of that, this old Testament passage is only talking about Jesus in the future. Yeah. Um, like it has no particular relevance at that time. At that time, yeah, yeah. So even like some of the most conservative scholars, and I, you know, probably not the best word to describe that in that theology category or whatever, but the ones that are trying to say that there's strictly only an Old Testament or only a New Testament reference here okay. um, would point out that even within Matthew chapter uh, 1 and 2, that really Micah chapter f- uh, 5, verse 2, which is quoted in Matthew chapter 2, verse 5. So yeah. it's like tongue twister. Tongue twister there. But Matthew 2, verse 5 and 6 is quoting Micah 5, verse 2, would make the point, and D.A. Carson, who's a brilliant scholar, says that this is one of the this is the only text out of the five in the infancy narrative, the Christmas narrative, that can be viewed as a very straightforward scheme of prediction and fulfillment with no multiple or deeper levels of use of typology or or added layers of meaning. Okay. So Carson's point is the Matthew two verse five, the second out of the five that's quoting uh, Micah chapter yeah. five, which is the prophecy of from the land of Bethlehem, who is least among the rulers of Judah from out of you will come a ruler ruler to shepherd my people Israel. Yeah. Carson's point is that this is the only one where it seemed to be like a clear, you know, straight line beeline to the new Testament Got or it. something strictly in the future. So that's the, the second, the second one out of the five. Okay. Um, the third one, the third, fourth and fifth is where it really gets interesting is you have Matthew chapter two, verse 15. This is kind of right after, you know, uh, Joseph has the dream. He has to flee because of what Herod's yeah. about to do, killing the baby go boys, to go to Egypt. Yeah. And so you have Matthew quoting Hosea 11 verse one, 
which says, out of Egypt, I called my son. And you go back to Hosea 11 and you go, this has nothing to do with Jesus at all. At least that's how my initial reading yeah. of, the, of the text goes. And I think what's interesting here is that even with Hosea 11, you have, if Matthew is going back to the Old Testament, to the book of Hosea, Hosea himself, the prophet, is going even further back because out of Egypt, I called my son, is clearly a reference to the Exodus story. <laughs> because you, ha- So then it's like almost like Inception, right? Where you have like layer upon layer of okay. kind of how these, these, these texts yeah. are working. Yeah. So if you go back to Hosea 11, out of Egypt, I called my son. My son, that's language from the early chapters of the book of Exodus where yeah. Israel was called God's son. Yeah, yeah. And God delivered out of Egypt his son, Israel. And, but when you're looking at Hosea 11, there's no kind of narrative about a young couple that are fleeing from a terror of a king that was going to be prophesied to come one day in the future. Yeah. What you have in a Hosea chapter 11 is the first seven verses of the chapter is really a lament about Israel's unfaithfulness and, and kind of just wandering and doing their own thing. Mm-hmm. And so in context of Hosea 11 verse 1, where the, the writer Hosea says, out of Egypt I call my son, it's in this posture of God lamenting like, Israel, you're the ones that I delivered delivered out of Israel or out of Egypt. And then he goes on, the prophet does to kind of give this litany of things that Israel's being unfaithful for. You've been wandering off. You've been doing your own thing, but I rescue you. Remember what I did back in the book of Exodus. Hmm. But then as the chapter concludes verses eight and following describes how God cannot and will not give up on Israel. Hmm. And so what's interesting is that a lot of New Testament scholars kind of make this point that oftentimes when a New Testament writer is making a direct quote from an Old Testament passage, oftentimes it's kind of inferred that perhaps they're wanting to kind of activate kind of that whole kind of broader section. Yeah. And so it's that, not often like just that line, but maybe that paragraph, that, that, story, that story or that concept. Exactly, right? Yeah. And so it's a way of kind of in, you know, think about just the technology of using a scroll in the first century. It's very expensive. You got to be concise. Space is limited. So like just having one line to reference back to an earlier, you know, story in the Hebrew scriptures is a way of activating that whole sort of narrative for that thing that Matthew's writing here in Matthew chapter yeah. two. So what would the point then be of Matthew activating Hosea uh, chapter 11? Well, again, I think it's for sure activating Exodus language that God is bringing another kind of Exodus moment, another mm. moment of deliverance to take place. And that even by the time when you get to the first century, there's a level of Israel as a, as a nation has kind of wandered and doing its own thing. That's what you get with the John the Baptist mm. story. That's going to happen in a couple chapters. It's like repent for the kingdom mm-hmm. of God is at hand. But then there's also this level of God is going to be faithful to his people. And that out of kind of calling my son out of Egypt is this way of God's going to bring this new kind of deliverer or rescuer mm. to address the problem that's facing Matthew and kind of the first century context of his day. So on one level, there's similarity and there's also dissimilarity happening at the same time. I think that's where yeah. it becomes confusing oftentimes for I people. I think it's confusing, but I think the way you're saying it is helpful mm-hmm. because I do think I've had the experience of riffing back, like you follow the link, mm-hmm. you go back to Hosea and you're like, huh, okay. You yeah. sort of shrug your shoulders. Yeah, yeah. But what you're doing is saying, hey, Matthew might not be using this as a saying, hey, this is a direct quote that you should then pay attention to just the three verses yeah, right yeah. there, but a whole concept. Exactly, yes. It's riffing back to the Exodus. Yes. Um, so the way he's using a quotation is maybe different Yes. than the way we would potentially imagine he's using uh, the quotation. So like, sorry, let me try no, go for it. Yeah, so yeah. it's kind of like, we think the quotation maybe is a proof text mm-hmm, mm-hmm. of like, 
look, I proved it. Yes, yes. Whereas he's using it less as a proof text and more as a window yes. into what Jesus is going to exactly. do. Exactly, yes. I think that's 100% right. Because oftentimes we think of, especially Old Testament prophecy and especially these Christmas prophecies of being like, here, here's my like, uh, like tangible empirical way yeah. to prove yeah, that, the, just that the Bible it. is true or that <laughs> Jesus is God's son. Cause here's this old Testament yeah. writer writing centuries before. And now it happened in, you know, the person of Jesus in the first century and the mathematical chances of Jesus fulfilling, yeah. you know, these dozen prophecies are so small. Like it's, yeah. it has to be true hundred yeah. percent. And well, I think there's some truth to that. Yeah, yeah, I think like the Micah five passage is one of those yeah. where it's clearly God does know the future and can, can predict things like yeah. that. I have no problem with that at all. But if we only look at it that way, yeah. We miss something. We miss something because there's a richness here where now mm-hmm. we're, we've been activated with the Egypt story and the yeah, rescue out of slavery. Really and we've been kind of reminiscing also, especially if you know the context of Hosea, where Israel's really being unfaithful there. Mm. And that whole story of Hosea. And Gomer. And Gomer. And like yeah. how God's like loyal love to yeah. even the most like unworthy people and that are just completely unfaithful. All of this is being activated now in saying even in this moment of tremendous difficulty on the part of the family of Joseph mm. and Mary, that God is still going to remain faithful and loyal and to love his people even through this mm. very difficult circumstance. Because again, cool. going back to the Matthew Matthew 1 story there. Now, something similar is also happening. So if, if that's the third one, quoting Hosea 11 in Matthew chapter 2, the fourth one is a quote from Jeremiah 31, uh, where Matthew is saying in Matthew 2.17 and following, a voice heard in Ramah weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeping for her children, refusing to be comforted because they are no more. Now, in context in Matthew, this is right after the news breaks out that Herod is slaughtering or is about to slaughter all the innocent babies in the surrounding region, two years and younger. Horrific. Yeah, Yeah, horrific. And so then Matthew says all this was to fulfill uh, what was happening in the prophet Jeremiah. Again, then he quotes Jeremiah 31 verse 15, which I just read. Now, this, I think, really can trouble some people because... Because on one level, if it's just straight like proof texting, you know, prediction fulfillment, you know, God predicted this in the past, it's happening now, then what we would have to say is something to the effect of God was predicting this slaughter like to a T and that Jeremiah was cognizantly thinking about Hmm. what was going to happen centuries after his time when he wrote Jeremiah 31 verse 15. Well, again, I don't want to deny that, you know, God is, you know, over time, knows the future, things like that. That's, that's all like part of, I think, Orthodox, Orthodox theology. I don't necessarily, it doesn't essentially seem to me when you go back to Jeremiah 31, that Jeremiah is even in like a predictive type, you know, mode as he's speaking and or writing. Hmm. He seems to be reminiscing Again, this is another instance of like the inception thing where he's going back himself to the book of Genesis mm. because Rachel weeping for her children is activating the whole story of Rachel as she is journeying about to give birth to her sons. Mm. She dies giving in, in childbirth. And that's this tragic moment later in the kind of late in the book of Genesis as they're about to be rescued out of kind of the famine and kind of mm. going to Egypt to find the uh, deliverance or food from from Joseph that Rachel herself uh, begins to, in this moment of pain and weeping as she gives childbirth. And I think there's this level of what's happening here. So is Jeremiah kind of, he's looking back Mm -hmm. on this story of pain and agony. Yes. And saying, hey, guys, as I'm talking to you, Mm -hmm. remember this suffering. Exactly, yes. And it's, it's almost like it's activating these stories in the past where God worked through this tremendous moment of suffering, Rachel weeping mm. as she gave birth to her children. And yet through that story in the book of Genesis, 
God brought rescue and deliverance mm. and God preserved his people. Because yeah, as you read the story, that's what happens. That's exactly what happens in the book of Genesis. And so as Matthew is activating sort of like that, that story back from not only Jeremiah, but also the book of Genesis, Matthew is kind of giving like on par or as like a similar type of example, what's happening in Matthew chapter two, as he quotes Jeremiah 31 verse 15, that something similar is happening here as well. We're in the moment of tragedy, in a moment of tremendous, horrific loss. God is going to be faithful to bring his plan to fruition, to provide mm. and to bring rescue through this, through this tragedy. So would you say that it's fair to say that like when Matthew quotes it, he's actually bringing up three contexts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's bringing up Genesis, mm-hmm. the people's experience of exile. Yes. And the tragedy in the first century with Herod. Exactly. Totally. Yes. And in, in at least the, the reference, the first one in Genesis, we see that God Mm -hmm. provides deliverance. Yes. The second one is undecided. And the third one is undecided. For sure. Totally. So two are undecided. Yes. Uh, and he's actually sort of riffing off of two different simultaneous Mm -hmm. hopes. One is the immediate context of the murder of kids. And the other one is the ongoing exile. Exactly. Exactly. So Israel's at the, in the moment of the first century is in this kind of posture, this kind of way of being of, we need deliverance. We need yeah. rescue. We're, we're home, but we're, we're still oppressed. Yeah, we're still oppressed. Like we're yeah. back in the land, but things aren't the way they should mm. be. And so he's activating this level of where you have the generations prior longing for a deliverer to come to rescue them and also the, the tragedy and the suffering from the generations prior as well. So again, this is challenging our knee-jerk reaction to proof text mm-hmm, yes, and sort of inviting us into a deeper story. For sure, exactly. And it's I think it, it expands our imagination in mm. the best sense of that word. So now we're, I think, more equipped to think biblically about thinking about how God has worked in the past in these biblical stories, how God has brought rescue and deliverance through tragedy and suffering, and how God might be doing that and is doing that That's even good. in our lives today. Well, and when you use the word imagine, um, I was talking with someone the other day and they said that... Um, you know, empathy is the ability to imagine what someone else mm, is experiencing. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, it was interesting, right? Because that's not, sometimes we think of empathy as this purely emotional thing. Sure. Like, I feel what you feel. Sure, sure. And this person said, no, no, the ability to imagine. Yeah. And there is this thing of like, if we want to enter into the pain mm-hmm. of what he's referring to, yes. we have to imagine. Exactly. What was yeah. it like for Rachel? Totally. And her yeah, family. What for was sure. it like for Israel being kicked out of their land, longing for, for home. sure. What was it like for the moms and the families to lose children? Totally. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. So there this is, is really this good. imagining for sure. That we're invited in for sure. And which I think thing then forms our thinking and way of living in the world of having a biblical imagination yeah. about our own circumstances today. And maybe even as we imagine it awakens our own personal yes, longing yeah, yeah. for a savior. For sure, for sure. And I think that it's all, I think, embedded within these, what seems to be a sentence or two in the New Testament, riffing back into the Old Testament. But there's a richness here That's powerful. when you take the time to do it. Yeah. The last one, I think, when we're talking about imagination, is actually requires the most imagination to a certain okay. degree. Because uh, I, mean, I think it'd just be helpful just to read it. This is Matthew 2, verse 22 and 23. Uh, but when he heard that Archelaus, this is when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea, Joseph, the mother of, or the father of yeah. Jesus and uh, husband of Mary, yeah. when Joseph heard that Archelaus was reigning in Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Having been warned in a, in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee and he went and lived in a town called Nazareth. So was fulfilled what was said through the prophets, he would be called a Nazarene. Now you can get a stack of books, pull out a concordance, do a word search. 
and you know copy and paste whatever you got to do there's not a single old testament text that has anything remotely of you know there's going to be someone that's going to you know be born to save and will be from nazareth <laughs> he'd be called a nazarene so it's like this one okay there's not a technically a, a quote but when matthew, matthew writes so this was or this was fulfilled what was said through the prophets that he would be called a nazarene there's nothing in the old testament that says that there's going to be a coming anyone that would be called a Nazarene. So the question is like, of like the Nazarite vow, the Nazarite vow is the closest thing. But even there, that's, you know, that's one way to perhaps look at it. There's like a loyalty to Yahweh there mm. in the Nazarite vow mm. that's being taken place. Um, but it's interesting here because I think this is, uh, and this isn't like an original to me, but a couple other, you know, people way smarter than me have kind of pointed this out. Well, on one level, no Old Testament de uh, text declares that anyone would be called a Nazarene. There's not even any like apocryphal or pseudepigraphal mm. texts that have anything like that as well. So just, you know, by way of vocab here, these are other texts written yes. in the first century <laughs> that aren't in uh, what we would generally be considered scripture. But there is a plethora of other the texts. Apocrypha, though, wasn't written. Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah. Told you, yeah. Um, but Often other. It's at exile through Jesus. Through Jesus. Time. Exactly. Right. So just, you know, for simplicity's sake, other texts yeah. that are floating around, there's still even in those nothing about a Nazarene coming to save or anything like so that. So basically, it's nowhere. It's nowhere. Right. So then how then can Matthew think that prophecy is fulfilled? And I think it, there's a kind does of. Does he use that language? Sorry, I missed that. Yeah. Yeah. So he uses. Uh, so was fulfilled. Wow. What was said through the prophets that he would be called a Nazarene. So this interesting. is now verse 23 of Matthew chapter so the two. The first four had an immediate reference that was clear. Yes. And you'll see that in your English Bible. If you have a new American standard, usually the quotes are in all caps. And it's okay. like an easy way for you to, as you read your English Bible, that's a direct quote from okay. the Old Testament passage. But this one. There's no quote. No and there's quote. no quote. And there's no, you know, oftentimes there's like an illusion or something. Yeah. There's, there's nothing in the Old so Testament. So what's going on there? So what's going on? Okay. So. Generally, a lot of people think this, that he's making some sort of play on words, noting the similarity between Nazarene and the Hebrew Nasser, which is the word for branch. Because what you have, you do have Old Testament prophecies, branch the branch of Jesse. Exactly. It's like this kind of stump or this branch coming out of the stump of Jesse from yeah. Isaiah chapter 11. So there's potentially this, this word play of this messianic title of basically the branch man or like the stick man coming Got to it. be... The rescuer and so there's a riffing that's going on mm. here so we're now in the ballpark again using the the biblical imagination this feels more like poetry poetry right so there's this there's this i guess poetic license maybe is a mm. too generous of a term but i think it's somewhere in that ballpark of now we're activating isaiah chapter 11 and verse 1 and following and there's a couple other passages as well but the wordplay between nazarene and nasar or nasser branch uh, there's i think there's a lot of mileage mm. um, with that one as well and then it also might be referring to using Nazarene as like a derogatory or slang term from someone coming from like an insignificant little town. Um, because I was thinking about that with John 1. Yes. Like, can Nathaniel. anything good come out of Nazareth, right? Yeah. And so what you have is this idea of Nazarene. Because really, I think Mackie made this point, is that, that the, 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 the name Nazareth, uh, can be a way to talk about that is like it's stick town or like branch town. Mm. And it's like this kind of, you know, in, in the, the sticks. sticks. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so we even use some of that same uh, sort of language. So we even have hints of this. We just mentioned this in John chapter one, that Nazareth is kind of seen as this like podunk mm. in the backwater type town, insignificant, you know, nothing really important is ever going to happen. There, nothing really good is going to uh, kind of happen. Um, from there and Isaiah 53 that says it talks about how Jesus in his uh, role of, a, of, of the suffering servant spoke of one who would grow up like a tender shoot 
mm. but would have no beauty or majesty that would make him attractive. Branch man. So it's the branch man. So it's like it's getting it's riffing off this idea of like nothing from like the human point of view we would see any beauty or majesty or anything significant. You know, it's interesting. But there's still something yeah. to take place. Well, and it's what you're helping, I think, us to see is that sometimes we are looking for direct quotes. Yeah. When what the Bible gives us is uh, illusions. Illusions, yeah, totally. Or a type, like yeah. you see this with the tree. The tree, exactly. Right, so like the tree of the knowledge of good and bad, mm-hmm. but then you see like tree popping up. All over, yes. All over, and you're yes. like, huh, I wonder if this is riffing, riffing yeah. and sort of helping me to say, oh, we're going back for sure. to Genesis for 2 sure. and 3. Yeah, yeah. Is that yeah. sort totally, of Yeah, like, totally, yeah. So I think what's, what's, what's uh, being required of us as people that are following Jesus, reading the scriptures, engaged with the text, is to really begin to have these texts embedded within us mm. so that we begin to see these connections kind of take place. But what I think the biblical writers in the New Testament in particular, and it's really happening all over scripture uh, now that I think about it, is that they are writing with this kind of inherent assumption yeah. that these texts are connected. And that what's happening in the New Testament is not just like some one-off sort of thing where Matthew's just pulling fast and loose here and there. He is really embedded in these texts. And he's a phenomenal writer, but he has this imagination that's been soaked in the Hebrew text. And when he has encountered the person of Jesus himself, he, you know, decade two or three later after the ascension and resurrection is contemplating, he's researching, he's interviewing eyewitnesses, he's compiling the different stories that are kind of floating around there under the inspiration of God's spirit. But he has been soaked in his imagination with these Old Testament texts. Well, and I feel like what you're inviting us to do is rather than like, approach the scriptures and say, I understand this verse mm-hmm. yeah, yeah. to say, Oh, I see what God is doing. Exactly. There. Yeah. Yeah. And to look back yeah. and forward for sure to see, Oh, what's happening. What's right? Happening. So yeah, this yeah. idea of the branch man, Oh, well there's a lot, right. And then a branch is connected to a tree exactly. and now you have like yeah. all, all these, these different, different things. things yes, totally. And, and it's taking like what seems to be so not related and different and recognizing that they're, yes, they're different and unique. Where you're talking about like the Isaiah 11 passage, Nazareth, you know, even some of these other Old Testament prophecies yeah. or, or that are seemingly out of context and different, yeah. but then they're kind of integrating and then bringing them together. Cause that's what the biblical writers, the New Testament writers are yeah. doing themselves. And how can we train our brains to do yeah. that as well as we engage with scripture? Well, maybe even an invitation to say, if it doesn't make sense, there's probably something else going yeah, on. Yeah, totally. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's, 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 to really just, honor the fact that these biblical writers, they're intelligent, like they're intelligent human beings and they know what they're doing. And most times I don't know what I'm doing when I'm engaging with the scriptures. It's not to like have this defeatist attitude, but to invite into this lifelong journey of being soaked with these texts in my own life. Well, there's a curiosity. Curiosity. Yeah. Exemplify. And it's cool. Yeah. Um, I also just see this sense of like, um, you know, again, Mackey uses sort of this phrase, meditation literature. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. But I was, I've been reading the Psalms, right? And you read the Psalms, Psalm 119, Psalm 1. It's like this idea of meditating yeah, yeah. on the law, for meditating sure, on the sure. scriptures. And it's like, you kind of need to do this. Totally, yes. It's like the only way you get through Matthew 1 and 2 with yeah. the richness is to slow down. Slow down, yeah. And be like, huh, Yeah. what's going on here? Be- yes, because you're not just reading Matthew chapter 1 and 2. 
you're reading Jeremiah 31, Hosea yeah. 11, the Exodus story. Yeah. You're reading portions of Genesis. You're reading Isaiah 11. Yeah. And you now have this kind of like this constellation, this bring together of all of these rich biblical texts. And now instead of just reading, you know, one chapter, you've been invited to engage with multiple this chapters, whole story. And bring this whole story and bring them together. It's so, cool. Yeah. I like it. Thanks, man. Awesome.